Good morning. The scripture reading for today is Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, and it can be found on page 6 of your bulletins. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emos, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Last week we started a a new sermon series on the topic of generosity. And we will continue that next week, um, picking back up on that all-important topic. For today, however, we have a special treat, uh, a guest preacher, uh, Pastor Chuck Garriott, uh, who has been a longtime minister in our denomination um, and is 
presently the leader of a ministry called Ministry to State, uh, walking with people uh, dedicated to government centers, including here in Washington, D.C. Uh, but Chuck and his wife, Debbie, and their family, of course, are also dear members of our community, which is always why it's a rich blessing to have Chuck and bring God's word uh, to us, not only as a fellow pastor, but also as a brother and friend in this here, our family. So thanks, Chuck, for being with us. Let's uh, welcome our brother back here. Can we pray? Father, thank you for giving us the morning to worship you uh, the past week and all the events. Thank you for uh, your incredible grace and how gracious you are to us in so many ways that we don't always even recognize and acknowledge. So help us uh, this morning uh, and thank you for the gift of faith and the gift of belief and pray that as we look at this passage and try to better understand it that you might teach us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's worth noting how people respond in a community or in a nation when there is some form of tragedy. Some of you know that uh, having spent some 20 years in Oklahoma City, uh, and a part of which was the Oklahoma City bombing, which uh, just a couple of hours, hardly a couple of hours ago, was the 20th uh, anniversary of that. It took place at 9.05 in downtown Oklahoma City. I had gone through this downtown uh, part of the city uh, about an hour or so before that, and lived about uh, 10 miles away from the Murrah building, when the bomb went off, but it was so loud where I lived, and as I was preparing to preach that following Sunday, I went to the floor, and uh, it was just an enormous explosion. And having gone through that kind of an event, and then seeing the way in which the community responds, uh, was was helpful in a lot of ways. And so it's given me a little bit of a sensitivity to those kinds of events, and maybe to some degree I've become a little bit of a student in that. So when I noticed this past week uh, the community there in Cologne, Germany, gathering together in regards to the tragedy that took place with the German Wings Flight uh, 9525 that, as you all know, crashed into the mountains there in France, and tragically everyone aboard that uh, plane died. But what was interesting to me to note is that, first of all, in a place like Europe, and specifically Germany, where the whole dynamic of faith and belief is somewhat on the decline. Now, to be honest with you, that's true in a lot of parts of the world, but in Western Europe, that's certainly true. And there were some studies done that showed in Germany, on the eastern side, the former side of the Soviet Union, that when people were asked, do you believe in God? The answer was that some, maybe only 13%, said, we believe in God. That means that the rest of those in eastern Germany said, no, I I don't believe in God at all. So regardless of what that might mean, there's a lot of people who just outright say, I am an atheist. And then in uh, the country at large, some of the studies have noted that maybe like up to 45% of the people would say that they believe in God. But again, that would at least imply that some 55% of the rest of the nation, and I forgot how big Germany is, what is it, 80 million, or some of you know better than I do, but the rest of the nation would say, no, I am 
practicing as a, that is in my life, as an atheist. So, to me, it's interesting then to see a nation, the leadership of the nation, the corporate leadership of the nation as well, come together in a cathedral in Cologne, with the uh, cardinal leading the worship service and the head of the uh, Protestant church coming together, leading the people in a time that would reflect belief and faith when you, you kind of know that fundamentally for a lot of those people, belief is something that's kind of odd and isn't really a regular part of their lives. I think that to observe the practice of unbelief in the presence of faith is an interesting thing because I think as people who are Christians who make a, who make a proclamation of faith that there are times in our lives where there is a considerable amount of unbelief and yet I'm not so sure that we see it. So the passage before us I find personally helpful as a reminder of what it looks like to be in a community where there certainly is faith and to acknowledge a dependency upon the Lord and yet at the same time wonder if it's possible for me to claim as a Christian faith and trust in Christ and yet at the same time, practically speaking, act and live as an atheist. And I'm speaking for myself and maybe none of this applies to you and so if it doesn't, you can go to sleep and enjoy the next hour and a half as I preach. I'm not going to preach that long, but you get the point. So what does it look like to be a person who is involved in a community of faith and yet act like an unbeliever? So look at the passage, if you will, with me. Back to Luke. As you'll recall, this is this is a time of tragedy within many of the people there in Jerusalem. This Jesus that many people had respected and loved and had been following, just like these two men on the way to Emmaus, found themselves to be confronted with the news that this Jesus is gone. He is dead. He has been crucified. I mean, like, really crucified. This isn't just some secret putting away somebody and then and then killing him and taking his body and burying it. This is very, very public. So the entire community is very much engulfed with the things that have taken place. Those who have been following Jesus, those who actually have placed their faith in Jesus, as well as those who don't care a hoot about this Jesus. In fact, you've got those who really disliked him and were hoping for this day, they're probably celebrating in terms of what had taken place. But these two men, we're told, were a bit bothered by it all. And so what do we see in regards to their response according to this account in Luke? And by the way, often we put Luke and Acts together. So we're coming into what I would call a transitional part of Luke's writing. And so as you look at, as you look at their, their lives and what they believe, it's, I think, a bit concerning. And I think, again, it may reflect some of the things in my own life. So here's the first thing we see in terms of their unbelief. They are, in fact, in the presence of Jesus, but they don't see him. Now, how is that possible? Now, we're told in the passage they were kept from seeing him, we're not told that it was God who closed their eyes or if it was the circumstances. 
But we all know what it's like to be involved in something and not see it. Now, I tend to think that many of us, when we're on our cell phones, there's all kinds of stuff that can go around in our lives and we just don't see it. We're so engrossed in our conversation that we just don't see the things around us. I mean, I've had that happen and, and you have as well. I, I don't know what it was that kept them from seeing it, but the point is that they are in the presence now, as they are on their way to Emmaus, of the living God. And they don't see him. Now Paul says in Romans 1, and I'll just read it quickly, he says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, this is chapter 1, verse 20 now, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. But they don't see, through all this evidence, that this is God. They are kept blind from it. And so Paul, later on in his writings in Ephesians 2, says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, meaning that you could not see. Now, I tend to think that what we refer to as general revelation, that is, the, when the Psalms say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands, how is it that most of the world sees an amazing picture when they get up in the morning in terms of life, in terms of this world and this universe? And it's really complex. I mean, incredibly complex. And yet they say this all happened clearly by chance, by some maybe big explosion. And out of this chaos came all this incredible order. I mean, I'll be honest with you. One of the things that helps me in my time of unbelief is general revelation, is to get up in the morning, is to go to bed at night, to see the sun up and the sun set, to see the beauty of the world. And to be around people who are so intricate and incredibly different and beautiful in so many different ways. And that to me says there is indeed a God who has spoken to us through his creation. But yet, it's clear that many times we just don't see it. So they're in the presence of Jesus, but they simply do not see him. Secondly, they are... They're, they have lives that are consumed with confusion and doubt. And just, they just can't make sense of it. There is the absence of hope within their lives. Have you lately maybe had a time, a season of life, when there has been absolutely nothing but despair? Only hopelessness. There's no meaning maybe in your life. There's no meaning maybe in the things that you're consumed with. These men are certainly that way. They're, they're finding that they're, what they thought was good, what they thought was, was going to be a part of their life is now gone. And they're, they're confused by it. Thirdly, we, we find that they're confused by the church and, and the activities that they see. That is the believing community. If you'll note here... Uh, Luke provides for us uh, their, their insights in regards to those with whom they have been spending time and they have trusted. They said, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
in addition, in verse 22, some of the women amazed us. Some of the people that, that we've known and we've trusted, they've, they've amazed us. They, they went to the tomb uh, this early morning and they didn't find the body. What, what happened to the body? But these women and some of the other men, they had this story of what had taken place. And to us, it just seemed like nonsense. We don't understand them. He's dead. Everyone knows that. He's been buried. Someone obviously took the body. Why are you saying these things? Do you ever find that the church confuses you? That it disappoints you? That you're baffled by either what it teaches or, or speaks about or the way in which it acts? Certainly, these two men experienced that. Fourth of all, we find that they're slow of heart. They do not really accept the Savior. Now, they, I know they can't see him now, but they really never understood his identity and who he is. And I think that's a problem in my life. That when I'm confronted with certain circumstances, I'm really revealing of what I believe to be the true identity of Christ. And a lot of times I say just what these guys would say. He was, and then they go through their list. He was great. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. All these good things. All these things are perfectly good. But those things in and of themselves do not identify the Jesus who Matthew says is Emmanuel, God with us. God in the flesh, not some great prophet and teacher. It's not unusual for me when I'm having conversations with friends, especially who, well, they could be in the church, to be honest with you, or they could be outside the church. They could be part of another community of faith. And I ask them specifically, well, tell me exactly what is it that you believe about Jesus? And I say, he was a prophet. You know, he was a great historical individual. But God in the flesh... No. And therefore, they didn't really accept his teaching and the things that he had said about himself. And as you go through the Gospels, look at Matthew 16, where Jesus is describing to the, to the disciples exactly what's going to happen to him. And of course, Peter responds by saying, well, this will never happen to you. And in a way, at that point in time, it looked as if Peter had the same view as they. Fifth of all, as you know, I'm going through this pretty quick. They didn't understand the scriptures. They didn't understand the Old Testament, that is. In terms of its, its view of the Messiah. Who he would be. And how he would function. And then last of all, they did not have any mission in their lives. In other words, if you look at the way in which they are functioning now, they are deflated. There's nothing left. All they, all they have now is their grief. And if you think about it, grief, in reality, that would certainly contradict that. I mean, they are in the presence of the living God, and they don't see him, they don't act like he's alive, they don't act like any of the things that he said is true. And so, what can they do? Except look at themselves and their disappointment, and they function that way. So, on the way to Emmaus, it looks pretty dismal. How do you 
define, therefore, faith and belief. I think it's worth looking at. And let me just take us here in this particular segment of what we're looking at and say a couple things based on a guy that wrote way back in the 50s and uh, by the name of John Murray who defined faith or belief in this way. But he based it on John 6, 38, where it says, For I have come down, this is Jesus speaking from heaven, not to do the will, but to do, not to do my will, but to, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall, I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. And Murray says there are three basic things we should remember when it comes to this issue of faith or belief. He says, first of all, it's an issue of, of, of knowledge, of fundamental knowledge, that these things have been taught in terms of Jesus, who he is. In Romans 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you have that bank of knowledge and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And so knowledge is important. But then he goes on, he says, but there needs to be more than knowledge. There needs to be conviction that these things are actually true. And if you think about the two guys, Cleopas and his friend, they did have knowledge. They were being told that this Jesus is indeed alive. But they had no conviction, of course. And so therefore, their lives demonstrate that as we have just spoke about. And then thirdly, Murray says, there needs to be trust. Faith is knowledge passing into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ. A transference of radiance, of reliance, excuse me, upon ourselves Transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. It is receiving and resting upon Him alone. Reliance upon from ourselves to reliance totally in every area of our lives upon Christ. I need, I need to hear that. I need to look at Luke at different dimensions within my life and realize that although I may outwardly be claiming as someone who's been following Jesus, who's been enamored by him, there are pockets, there are places in my life that the truth is I'm an atheist, practicing atheist. And it comes in different ways. So what does it look like to have the gift of belief and faith? And may I say that the scriptures make it clear that it is a gift. And you need to understand, regardless of where you're coming from this morning, and I, you know, I don't pretend to know all of you here, that I suspect that this morning, amongst us, if everyone were to stand up and make an acknowledgement of who they are and what they believe, that there would be some who would say that, I don't believe at all. I, I, I came because my friend forced me, and we're going to have a really good lunch afterwards, and I'm looking forward to that. But I'm enduring all this just to get on to the lunch. And there'd be others who would say, you know, I've had a really difficult week, and I've had my, 
my faith tested in certain ways, and I'm not quite sure what it is that I believe. And others of you would would stand up and say, you know, I made a commitment to Christ, and I've been trusting him, and yes, my faith is often weak, and I somewhat have struggles, but I have surrendered totally to Christ. And let me say this, that if even if you're contemplating this dynamic of faith, you cannot ignore that there is something significant happening in your life. And if you are someone who, who has been a believer for any period of time, let me tell you, you have a gift that is off the charts. Because if what Paul is saying is true, that it is our, our natural tendency to, in essence, suppress the truth of that which we see, suppress the fact that God is the one who has created this world and this universe and has created me and my soul and my environment. And therefore, I have, a re- I have an obligation to respond appropriately to him. If you come anywhere close to that, that means really the most significant miracle that could ever take place in a person's life is taking place in one way or the other in your life. And it is an act of God's grace in your life. Do you see it as that? Are you willing to take this seven-mile walk? Now, you know how long seven miles is from, or where seven miles would take you from here? Uh, I, I Googled it before I came, but I think the airport, Reagan now, Reagan is about eight miles, right? So if, from here, if you were to take then a walk to Reagan, you know, you go down 16th Street and cut around, go on down to the Memorial Bridge and make a left, you know, as you're at Arlington Seminary and you walk a little bit further, that's basically seven miles. So if you were to take that seven-mile walk with Jesus this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, whenever, what would he, what would he how would he respond to you? What would he say to you about these different areas of your life? Now, it's interesting to me to note the way in which Jesus responds to these two men. Especially in light of their circumstances. As far as they know, this is a tragedy. National tragedy. Someone that they really appreciated is now dead and gone. Now, In ministry, we're taught that at certain circumstances, you know, when you're in a hospital, or you're with a grieving family because they just lost someone, that there are certain things you do, you you don't do. And so, it's interesting to me to note that Jesus seems to have missed all that. I mean, really. You know, for example, you know, someone's grieving... You know, you, you try to come alongside them and encourage them and, and, and acknowledge the fact that they are grieving and they're hurting and, and you want them to understand that you're there for them and their circumstances. And, and sure, you might have a lot of things that you want to communicate, but, you know, that's not really the time to do that. Sometimes you just need to be there in silence. And I'll be honest with you, when I got involved with the families at the Family Center in Oklahoma City after the bombing, there were times when I went into this family center, which was very difficult to go into, because there were people. Because I didn't know these people, I didn't know these family members or the victims, but yet I was called into some kind of ministry. And and for and, for, and sometimes for hours, I would just sit with these people and say nothing. 
And that's kind of part of our, you know, what we understand to be what needs to happen because when people are in shock, etc., that's how you respond. Or maybe you might, if you're kind of moving along the course of things, you might pray with them. You know, maybe Jesus would have come alongside these two men and seen their grief and their, the fact that they were so hopeless and said, hey, guys, can we just pray? Can, can we just pray together? Let's just stop and come over here to this rock in, in the shade. We're just going to pray about this. That's not what he did. And, and in fact, in some ways, it, 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 does, it does surprise me a little bit. But what he does is, he says, first of all, he's, he's not really using these words of compassion. He said to them, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Come on, guys. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Were you not listening? I mean, that's kind of the, the tone, I think, that they're probably, oh, where do you come from? You know, are you the only guy you know, around that hasn't heard about it? And now that we're telling you this is how you're responding? And then what does he do? And then Luke tells us. From memory, I guess, I'm sure. This is the Son of God. He didn't have his Bible or his, you know, I mean, we all have, like, how many versions do you have of the Bible in your iPhone, you know? And he didn't pull that out. He just said, just give me a couple minutes or a couple hours here. And as they are walking, he takes them to, I don't know, we're not told exactly, but we're told that he takes them to the Old Testament the terminology that he uses here when he talks about the, uh, the prophets and, and the other writings, etc. here, the, 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 the terminology says to us that he opened up, and in fact it says, all of Scripture. And he showed them. You know, here in Genesis, like in chapter 3, after the fall, when God said, and, and I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and, and the, the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the the heel, the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. You know, when, when you read that in Genesis, do you know that is actually referring to the Messiah, to the Christ coming in pain for the sin? This mess that you have just made with, with what you did by taking that fruit is going to be resolved. God has a very definite plan. And Jesus then took them through the... The rest of the book of Genesis, maybe in Exodus, and showed that the sacrificial systems that were being given, etc., and the Day of Atonement, all these things, all these things were pointing one way. Isaiah, when he says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of all. All those passages, the historic books, the poetic books, Psalm 89 that speaks about the Davidic covenant, the fact that, that there is going to be a king from David's throne, or from David's line, so to speak, that's going to sit on his throne. That's going to be Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus was going through all this with these guys. In a way, he just kind of dumped on them the scriptures. And that kind of tells me something, personally. Yes, I need, I need people to come alongside and just sit quietly with me and care for me. I need definitely people to come alongside me and pray with me and, and be sensitive to the things that are going on in my life. But what I really need, perhaps, 
And I'm not saying that what Jesus did is the protocol for every circumstances, but certainly I need to be reminded of the truth. And, and, and what is Jesus saying here in regards to where the scriptures fall in his own thinking? And do I reflect that saying? So is it possible that sometime in the next near future, today, tomorrow, whenever, that you would take the seven-mile walk and let Jesus speak to you about what all the scriptures say in terms of your world and life view? Would you, would you be willing to hear that? Would you be willing to hear what all the scriptures say when it comes to the topic of worry and anxiety? I know I need that. Do you ever wake up in the morning? Maybe it's really early in the morning and you're, you're just anxious. You're just kind of wondering, how in the world am I going to pay that bill or what's going to happen at my work or how am I going to get that project done or that paper done or whatever the case may be? Are you willing to hear Jesus as he explains what all the scriptures say in that area in terms of family, marriage, your view of sexuality, your view of relationships, your view of conflict in relationships, are you willing to let Jesus take you on that seven-mile walk and teach you there when it comes to your work and your calling, when it comes to the dynamic of rest, when it comes to the issue of the church and the community at large, the poor, those who are in need, when it, comes, when it comes to those who are suffering. And maybe they're suffering because just internally, life is really hard. I mean, it's really hard. Depression is something that seems, that cloud of depression seems to be coming in big time, more frequently than ever. Or maybe it's some physical kind of suffering where you are, you just hurt. You know, there's some aspect physically. Maybe there's some illness that you're suffering from or you know of others. Are you willing to hear Jesus give you that seven-mile lesson from all the scriptures on suffering and grief? My prayer is that in my own life, I would be more attentive here. I would spend and invest the time. And my prayer is the same for you. Father in heaven, thank you so much for granting us, giving us faith. I thank you when communities and even countries like in Cologne, Germany would stop and come together and go to a place of faith that has been there since the 1200s or so. At least in some form acknowledge you, but I also pray that there would be the reality of faith, not just a shadow of it. I pray that there would be a real understanding of what it means to know this Jesus, who is the Son of God, who gave up the riches of heaven and became poor for us. I pray that we would learn from him in every area of our lives that there would be real belief and faith 
and that it will be based not upon anything else except your truth given to us in Scripture. Thank you for loving us and sending your only Son, Jesus. His name we pray.